Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they produced no grain. And other seed fell on the good soil. It came up and grew and produced a crop thirty times, sixty times, even a hundred times. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Then night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. Though he does not know how, all by itself the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the whole kernel in the head. And as soon as it is ripe, he puts his sickle to it because the harvest has come. What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds that you plant in the ground, and yet when planted, it grows. It becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air nest in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything to them. Uh, um, Deeply, they are wonderful teachers. They are wonderful preachers, I think. They are wonderful pastors, both of them. And so I'm very humbled uh, to be here alongside them in this, uh, in this, uh, in this series. And uh, I'm also very uh, gracious for your warm hospitality and welcome to me. Uh, Carson and Houston told me that's what would happen, but they didn't oversell in any way how warm and welcome you would be. And so I want to thank you uh, for the open arms that you've offered to me coming here to be with you this morning. As I join you this morning, I'm reminded about a a well-known proverb. You never get a second chance to make a first impression. I'm making my first impression this morning on you. I, I recognize that. First impressions are important. First words are important. And I think for a long time to come, whatever I say this morning will shape how you think about me, for good or bad. And with that in mind, I think it's worth noting that in Mark 4, the passage that we're focused on for today, we encounter the first block of Jesus' teaching that's presented in Mark's gospel. Now, don't get me wrong, he has obviously spoken before in the gospel. He's pronounced healing on people. He's offered some stinging one-liners in his conflicts with the Pharisees already to this point. Mark has even summarized for us Jesus' message way back in the beginning, in chapter 1. If you look in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 1, we get the heart of what Jesus' message is going to be. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So we've heard from Jesus before we get to Mark 4. We've heard him even summarize what his preaching is going to be, the arrival of the kingdom of God. But Mark 4 is the first extended section of teaching. And so I think it's worth us asking, what impression does Jesus leave in Mark's gospel with his first words? How does this section of teaching shape how we're going to think about him? Well, I'll note a couple of things. One, this whole section of parables are about the kingdom of God. 
Jesus has come to announce the arrival of God's reign, as we heard way back in the beginning of chapter 1. A time when all powers opposed to God will be defeated, and God will finally make everything right. At least as far as God defines right. And he makes this announcement with both his teaching and his miracles. In his teaching, he announces the arrival of the kingdom and tells us what that might look like. And with his miracles, he shows us what it looks like. He acts it out, defeating those forces opposed to God's reign, like disease or death or sin, and setting things to rights. So that's one thing. We learn right away that Jesus is here to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God. Two, this first section of teaching that we get is offered in parables. Or we might say even riddles. Jesus will be an enigmatic figure in the gospel. Because to those who live outside of God's reign, the kingdom of God is a mystery. It's hard to imagine that the world we know could be any different than it is. And even those closest to Jesus, his disciples, will struggle to understand him completely. And if we're honest, we can relate. There are things that Jesus does and says in this gospel that will leave us puzzled, I think, and struggling to grasp the mystery of the kingdom. And the third thing I'd mention is not only are we talking about the kingdom of God in the form of parables, but the first parable that Jesus provides is the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower. You know, all of the evangelists, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, follow the same broad chronology as they tell us the story about Jesus' life. A beginning of ministry in Galilee, escalating tension between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders as he moves toward Jerusalem, and then finally, in the last week of his life, a conflict in Jerusalem that leads to his death. But within that broader structure, the different authors arrange the stories more freely in order, I think, to clarify the picture of Jesus that they're painting. And so, I think it bears asking, why would Mark arrange things in this way? Why would he want to begin? Why would he want to introduce us to Jesus' teaching with this parable? The parable of the soils. Matthew doesn't do it this way. Matthew introduces us to Jesus' teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. Pretty good choice, if you ask me. And he doesn't get, it till the, the, he doesn't get to the parable of the soils until much later in Jesus' ministry. Luke begins with a sermon in the synagogue in which Jesus cites a passage from Isaiah to announce that the Spirit is coming to turn the world upside down. Also a pretty good starting place, if you ask me. Mark, though, starts with this parable, the parable of the soils. Why? Well, one way to think about it is that it's kind of like one of those red filters, you know, a little screen, a little piece of red screen that is used as a secret decoder in kids' spy toys. You know, you might have a piece of paper that's printed with all sorts of kind of a jumbled mess of, of letters or symbols or colors that doesn't make any sense until you slide that red filter over the top and all of a sudden clearly pops out a message that was there all along. In some way, I think this parable functions that way from Mark's gospel. By placing a parable that's about the various responses to Jesus' message at the beginning of the gospel, Mark invites his hearers to use the parable as a lens as a filter to assess the various people that Jesus will encounter throughout the rest of the story. And the parable is structured in a way to make it really easy to remember, right? We've got these four soils with certain characteristics that makes it easy to hold in our minds then as we go throughout the rest of the story and encounter different people that Jesus encounters. And also, um, the parable here, is uh, Jesus offers a, an explanation, which he doesn't always do. 
for the parable. So we see, uh, as he continues and is questioned by his disciples, Jesus explaining what this parable means. In verse 13 of chapter 4, Do you understand this parable? Why not? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And still others, like seed sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life... The deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. So we're given this interpretation of the soil. What are the different responses that people will give to Jesus' message? Uh, And as we encounter people in the gospel, we might reflect back and ask, where does this person fit? What kind of soil is she? Let's try a few examples. Let's test some things out. What about the rich ruler that's talked about in Mark 10 who comes to Jesus with a good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But when Jesus tells him that he must sell everything he has and give it to the poor, he walks away. What kind of soil might the rich ruler represent? Maybe the thorny soil where the cares of this world, wealth, Jesus says, are choking out faith that might grow when Jesus offers the message of the good news. What about the Pharisees that Jesus will encounter over and over throughout this gospel? Maybe they also are another kind of thorny soil. There's, there's things besides money right, that can choke out faith. Maybe the pursuit of honor can have that same kind of choking effect. Maybe a, a clinging to being right can have that same kind of choking effect. But maybe so far in the gospel, they've been presented mostly like the path. Because as soon as they hear Jesus' message, they begin to resist. Uh, And so that's why we have so many conflict stories between Jesus and the disciples already uh, in in the gospel. What what about the good soil? Who do you think provides an example of the good soil? Anyone in the story so far that comes to mind? One example I think of is actually in a story that will come next. When Jesus crosses the the Sea of Galilee and encounters uh, a demon-possessed man. I think this demon-possessed man provides a kind of unexpected example of the good soil. Because after he is healed by Jesus, he goes around and shares what Jesus has done. And spreads the word about who Jesus is. And maybe there is an example of the good soil. And maybe that's something that should alert us. Good soil will appear in unexpected places. The growth of the kingdom may surprise us, may defy any explanations that we try to offer. All right, where would we place the disciples? Jesus has been calling people to follow him throughout the first two chapters. And in chapter 3, if we go back a page, he appoints a special group that he also calls apostles. They're not only called to follow Jesus, that is, disciples, but they're also sent out, that is, apostles, to minister in Jesus' name. So we read about this in chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve that might be with him and that he might send out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So we see Jesus calling this group, and he appoints them for two purposes, to be with him 
and to be sent out. Now, at first blush, that sounds a little bit contradictory. Are they to be with him, or are they, are they to be sent out? But I think that's actually a really important thing for us to note, because if we are with Jesus, the, the consequence is being sent out to proclaim him to those around us. And if we are sent out, that our, 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 our sending, our, our proclaiming, will very quickly wither and die out if it's not fed and nourished by abiding with Jesus. These disciples have these two purposes, to be with Jesus and to be sent out. And they're sent out for two purposes, to proclaim the message and to cast out demons. That should sound familiar. That's exactly what Jesus has been doing to this point in the gospel. They are sent out to be little Jesuses, wherever it is that he's sending them. Now, we also get their names, which ends up being significant, I think. We're told who these people are. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. A nickname. Rocky. Right? If you kind of think of Rocky from the movies, maybe that's not a bad image. Right? The kind of lovable but sometimes bumbling uh, you know, uh, character. That's uh, how Peter ends up being. Right? The name Peter, of course, is a, is a transliteration, transliteration of the Greek word for rock. So he names one of them Rocky. And then James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John also gives them a nickname, the sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. A little foreshadowing there at the end of the list. And so we've got this group of disciples who have been called and, and then sent out uh, to proclaim the message and to cast out demons. So where do they fit in this taxonomy of soils? What type of soil do you think they are? I think we can eliminate the path based on their initial reaction, but the other three types of the soil still might be viable options. It really depends on where they go from here, right? I think we expect, we, we want, we, we hope for them to be the good soil, just as I expect and want and, and hope that I'll be the good soil. But is that how it'll play out for the disciples? I think Mark has offered us some clues already about how the rest of the story is going to play out for the disciples. First, notice which type of soil gets the longest description, both in the initial parable and in the explanation that Jesus provides. Second, what clue might the names of the disciples provide? Remember, Peter's name means rocky. And it's the description of the rocky places, the rocky ground, that gets the longest description in the parable and in Jesus' explanation of the parable. Is that what we're supposed to imagine the disciples being? Well, where do they end up at the end of Mark's story as he gives it to us? We're, we're going to see throughout the story that the disciples struggle and stumble. They'll answer Jesus' initial call to discipleship and apostleship with this no small thing, but then they'll fail to understand his teaching already here in chapter 4. Jesus is frustrated with them for not understanding things that he has told them. When Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is in chapter 8, Peter will answer correctly, the Messiah. But in the very next scene, Jesus has to rebuke him strongly. Get behind me, Satan, he says to Peter. Because Peter fails to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah and even resists Jesus being the Messiah he says he's called to be. At the time, of course, we're 
hoping all the time throughout the gospel. We're hoping and expecting them to figure it out. But at the end of the story, what do we see? If you look with me in chapter 14, we have one of the last scenes with the disciples. It's the Last Supper, and then the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. And at the end of the supper, Jesus makes a prediction. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, good old Rocky, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same, Mark tells us. Maybe a glimmer of hope. They're claiming, they're they're emphatically claiming that, that they will face death rather than disown Jesus. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, while Jesus struggles with his coming death, they struggle to stay awake. And when the soldiers, led by Judas, arrive to arrest Jesus, they flee. Mark tells us in kind of a chilling line at the end of the story of Jesus' arrest in verse in verse 50 of chapter 14, then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus, and when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, let's go ahead and say maybe what we're all thinking at this point. That's an odd detail to include, Right? Matthew, Luke, and John also would agree with us. They don't include the story about the, about the Gethsemane streaker that, John, that Mark rather includes here. So, so why does Mark tell us a story about a young man who runs away naked at the moment Jesus is arrested? Interpreters have long noticed it's, it's a strange story. Not only the nudity, but also his clothes to begin with. What's a guy doing out at night in only a linen garment? And that oddness of the story, I think, reflects or invites some reflection. In one sense, I believe, the young man acts as a symbol for the disciples in this moment. When they abandon Jesus to die alone, they are exposed for who they really are. The rocky soil in which the fruit of faith withers and dies in the heat of persecution. In another sense, I think, the young man acts as a symbol for those hearing Mark's gospel, his audience. It might be odd that the young man is wearing nothing but a linen garment in the middle of the night, but for Mark's hearers, there was likely a time in their own lives when they wore nothing but a linen garment, their own baptism. In many early Christian communities, people were baptized in the nude. They would take off their garments on one side of the baptistry in order to symbolize taking off the old self. Then they would be immersed, and after so, they would emerge from the waters and be clothed with a white linen garment in order to symbolize their being clothed now with Christ. So is Mark inviting his hearers to see themselves in this young man? Is he warning them that trials await after baptism? Getting dunked is not an inoculation against suffering. In fact, it might be the first step first step in a march toward suffering as it was for Jesus or is Mark reminding them that like the disciples they too at some point in the past 
have fled persecution. Though they had been clothed in Christ at baptism in a crisis of persecution, they shrugged him off like an old cloak and ran as far and as fast as they could. Is he reminding them that they, like the disciples, have been the rocky soil? That might be kind of a discouraging analysis of the disciples in Mark's gospel. We'd hoped that they would be the good soil, but in the end, they're revealed to be the rocky soil. I think, however, it's also a deeply meaningful analysis for Mark's hearers, for his audience, and likely for us as well. Though we don't know exactly when Mark wrote his story, the earliest reports indicate that his gospel records story that Peter himself told to the Christians in Rome. And they so loved his stories that they then compelled Mark to write down and record all the stories that Peter had told them about Jesus so that they could have them and tell them to one another after Peter was gone. We also know that the Christian community in Rome suffered severe persecution under Nero in the early 60s. When a fire destroyed part of the city, rumors spread that, a new build, that, that Nero himself had started the fire in order to clear ground for a new building project. And Nero responded by finding a scapegoat. He blamed the Christians for the fire and launched a persecution against the group. And when brought before Roman officials and questioned, members of the community would be executed in cruel ways, we're told by Roman historians, unless they renounced their association with the group. If Mark's community had endured this kind of persecution in their recent past, then suddenly certain parts of the story take on added significance, I think. Think about it. Who survives the kind of persecution Nero carried out against the community? Those who flee before they can be arrested. Or those who deny Christ when questioned by the Roman authorities. Those are the people who survive that kind of persecution. In other words, they're the people who look a lot like the disciples in Mark's story. Those who look a lot like the rocky soil. And from this perspective, I think that the parable of the mustard seed offers hope. It's one of the next parables that Jesus tells. Right? He says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The smallest of seeds that you can plant. And yet, when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants so that the birds of the air can find shade in its large branches. In this parable about the growth of the kingdom of God, what does the seed represent? Now, I think one obvious answer would be that it represents the message, the gospel, just like we had in the parable of the soils, where Jesus tells us that the seed is the word, the proclamation of the arrival of the kingdom, the proclamation of Jesus as Messiah. I think that would be a very good reading of this parable. But I think there are other possibilities. Could the seed represent Jesus himself? Mark tells us that no one expected much out of him. In chapter 3, we have two groups, Jesus' own family and the Pharisees, dueling over who Jesus might be. The Pharisees think he's a demon-possessed person. His family thinks he's crazy. And really, they both maybe would seem to have been proven correct when he hung on the cross at the end of the story. He never seems smaller than in that moment of humiliation. And yet... Maybe the seed could represent the disciples. Right now in the story, in chapter 4, they appear pretty big. They're the select group 
Jesus is appointed to be disciples and apostles, but by the end they abandon Jesus with such haste that they leave their clothes behind. Can God do anything with a faith so small that we might say it doesn't exist at all? Well, yes. Even though it doesn't happen within the confines of Mark's stories, those who abandon Jesus on the cross eventually return to his call and, empowered by his Spirit, boldly proclaim the good news to all who would listen. Maybe the seed could represent Mark's audience. In the wake of an intense persecution, they might be feeling pretty small. They've seen loved ones killed for their faith, faith, and they only survived by running away. Can God do anything with their tiny, failing faith? Well, if the disciples are any example, what about you? Maybe when people look at you, they see something pretty small and fairly inconsequential, something that surely can't amount to much. Maybe that's even what you see when you look at yourself. Or maybe when people look at you, they see someone who's got it all together. Someone with gifts and talents to spare. Someone from whom we should expect big things in the future. But you know the truth. You know what's behind the brand. And it feels pretty small. Can God do anything with you? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which is the smallest seed you plant in the garden. And yet, when planted, it grows. What does Mark hope his hearers will learn from the example of his disciples? God, in his mercy, can use rocky ground. Just look at Peter. Bless his heart. God can transform shallow, rocky dirt into rich, productive soil. God, in his mercy, can take scorched, withered plants, dead stalks that failed to produce a crop, and create a fruitful harvest beyond measure. Even when it may seem dead to us, the seed sprouts and grows, though we don't know how. Just look at the empty tomb. Because in the end, it's God's Spirit that brings life. Not our skill, or our effort, or our righteousness. Thanks be to God. And of course, the same is true for the other types of soil as well. God can till the path or clear the thorns to create a good soil. That's what we learn, I think, from Mark's story of the disciples. God offers second chances and third chances and fourth chances. He invites and then empowers those who have failed him and will no doubt fail him again to join with him in building his kingdom from the smallest things, the smallest seeds like the faith of the disciples, like our own faith, can grow large, shade-giving branches when those seeds are planted and nurtured by God. So where are you in the parable of the soils? Or can you see yourself in the parable of the mustard seed as well? One of the primary ways I think that God nurtures us is through His church the group that's gathered together here this morning. If you need to confess some thorns that are choking your faith or stifling your fruitfulness, you have time this morning to share that with your brothers and sisters. They're here to help you clear the land. Or maybe you're feeling scorched and withered by a relentless heat of hardship 
and suffering. You can share that too. Let your brothers and sisters be big, shade-giving branches. Or maybe you're hearing the good news for the first time this morning. If so, I pray you accept it like the good soil. But as we all can tell you, the Christian life isn't something that you do all by yourself. Share your excitement and concerns and questions, and let us join you in cultivating the good soil and rejoicing in the harvest. As we sing the next song, you can come to the front to share any of these things with the shepherds of this community, but there are plenty of other people here this morning who love you. You can share these things with them, too. In either case, this morning, I encourage you to confess or share your struggles or take the first steps in following Jesus and then watch what God can do with that small seed.